Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, your co-host. Thrilled to have you here with us today. We have one of our neighbors in the house today, a good friend of ours, Scott Allender, who is an expert in global leadership and organizational development, along with co-hosting the Evolving Leader podcast. He regularly teaches Enneagram workshops and conducts typing interviews and emotional intelligence assessments. Listen, he's got a brand new book called The Enneagram of Emotional Intelligence, and he writes, there's a gap between the people we are and the people we know we can be, and the missing piece is emotional intelligence. So we're talking all things Enneagram and emotional intelligence today. I know you're going to love this interview with our good friend, Scott Allender. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. Let's get to the host with the most... Ian Cron. Hey, Typology Tribe. Man, this is going to be a good one. We have Enneagram 3, Scott Allender, author of the new book, The Enneagram of Emotional Intelligence, A Journey to Personal and Professional Success. More importantly, Scott is an old and dear friend, and I'm thrilled to have you on the show, brother. I am thrilled to be here. It's so good to be back. Thank you. All right, let's rehearse for people our history. You go ahead and, and I'll, I'll add color. Okay. So, <laughs> well, I think I, maybe several different people made introductions of us. With, I, I remember uh, through uh, two or three different friends uh, reaching out to me and saying, you need to connect with Ian. I, I was with Ian at a retreat and Ian's amazing. And I had read your book, of course. So, I gladly took the introduction. And I think the first meeting we had was somewhere in uh, Midtown in Nashville, and we had lunch. And then we went on to do a corporate workshop together for yep. two days, and that was a blast. Yeah. And out of that came a, a friendship, and uh, both personally and professionally, that has been really fun for the last five years. Yeah. So, I'm so grateful for your friendship, and your fingerprints are all over this book, just like, mm. you know, in many ways, they're all over me and my journey of awareness and growth in the Enneagram. So, it's such an honor to be here talking to you in this capacity. Well, it has really been fun to watch your trajectory. I'm so thrilled about this book. Everybody, I'm going to give myself a little props, but I wrote the forward for this book, and that means it must be great because <laughs> I will say this, I get asked to write forwards several times a year, and I always say no because they take so much time and energy and work, especially for someone who's a little bit of a perfectionist neurotic around writing as I am. But for Scott, not just because he's a friend, but because this book is solid. The Enneagram of Emotional Intelligence, A Journey to Personal and Professional Success. We're going to get all into this. So let's have at it. All right? Yeah. Scott, you are a three on the Enneagram, but you are a countertype self-pressed three. And I really want to focus in on that. Okay. Uh, I know that you, your journey to figuring this out was a little difficult. And then I want you to describe why this countertype, the self-pres three is so different and why it's so hard for people sometimes to identify as one. Yeah, it, it has been, it was a long journey to find my type. I think it took me, I don't even know, six months, 12 months of active study. Uh, at some point I thought maybe I was a one, but that didn't mm -hmm. quite feel right. I tried on eight for a while and everybody told me I wasn't an eight, but yeah. And I finally, well, a couple things happened in my life and I write about one of them in the book where I was overcome unexpectedly with an anxiety attack that led me down a road of recognizing that I was very disconnected 
from my own emotional experience. So when that happened, and I was driving about 75 miles down a freeway at the time that it happened, pulling off the road and thinking I was having some kind of cardiac event. And when I, long story short, got through that and recognized, oh man, this is anxiety. Why is this anxiety here? What is it that I'm actually feeling right now? What was I feeling before? And not being able to really connect with it. And then I was also part of a men's group with a friend of mine who's doing some work with men as part of his PhD program. And I was also struggling, you know, the assignment in the room was look at these feelings written on the wall and name your feeling. And you don't have to give any context for why you feel that, but just say what you're feeling. And I I was the last one to go. I couldn't get there. And that set me on a journey of why am I so disconnected from my feelings? And so I dove into Beatrice Chestnut's book, The Complete Enneagram. And when I finally got to the self-preservation three description, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. She's been living in my house somewhere. I didn't realize that. And what I learned about that is how even though threes are at the center of the feeling triad, they're the most feeling type on the Enneagram. Fours have more access to feeling, but threes are more feeling, like have more, they're at the center there. They also push away their feelings, of course, to accomplish, to achieve, to respond to the false story they carry that they have no worth other than what they do. And so they set about working really hard, especially self-preservation threes can work even harder than the other subtypes trying to stay ahead of their own emotional experience because they often feel like their emotions didn't really matter. Their identity didn't really matter. And their story as a young person. On top of that, what I learned is I actually, so most of the time when you hear threes described, you hear the social three, right? That's the go-to description of Mm -hmm. the three. Mm-hmm. And so when I first learned about threes, I put that aside as that's not possible. That's not me. I didn't even consider that. And it turns out because all of these instincts, you have self-preservation, the one-to-one and the social, they all show up as a kind of sequence in your type if you get into working with subtypes. So mine actually goes self-preservation, one-to-one, and I repress social. So I don't look very much like a social three at all. And the best way I can describe being self-preservation dominant Social repressed is always wanting to be invited to the party, but never wanting to go. Wow. Nice. I like that. And, you know, that self-pressed three, one of the things that makes that sort of the countertype expression is not original to me, but they're vain about not being vain. Yeah. (laughs) Help people understand what that means. It means that once upon a time, I actually leased a BMW and I felt really uncomfortable for the entire three years and I turned it back in and got a Ford Explorer. Yes. <laughs> and that's why counter type threes, the self-pressed three, they have the hardest time owning that they're threes. Yeah. Like because they're turned off by the social three expression. Yeah. So they're like, I couldn't possibly be a three. I would be offended if right. someone said that I was a three, but right. it's like, yeah, but your vanity is around (laughs) your refusal to be vain or to think that you're vain. And so that kind of thing, like what you're describing with that car thing. And, you know, for example, I could get in trouble for this, but the stereotype of Mormons sometimes, you know, upright, good citizens, Hmm. not frugal, but, you know, like go to church. There is a kind of counter type three quality there because there's like this also, there's a lot of, you know, drivenness, ambition in that community. And, you know, this is something actually, by the way, a counter type three Mormon told me. So I feel hmm. sort of free to articulate this that there's a vanity around not being vain in that community sometimes. So, anyway. Yeah, uh, it's this, uh, it's this alchemy kind of, of still wanting to look good like a three does, 
but also wanting to actually be good. Right. right. That's, yeah. So that's kind of why I danced around one for a second because of the ethics and the sort of that kind of approach, right. you know, so it can look like that. Don't you think a counter type three can also sometimes maybe might identify themselves as a healthy six? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more, well, hence the anxiety experience. There's a lot more, I think for all nine types that are dominant in self-preservation, there's more, a little more fear there. And certainly as a three who has a connected line to six. So there's already that kind of flow of energy that kind of happens. The self-preservation can look a little six-like. Yeah, I didn't mention that earlier, but I did pause on six for a second as well when I was considering my my type. Yeah. Also because the self-pres is really good at advocating for somebody else, mm. um, which is a very six kind of way mm-hmm. of being in the world. Okay, so let's talk about emotional intelligence because I, one of the premises of this book is that it's a key predictor of success, not only in business, but in personal relationships, right? In our personal yeah. lives, which is where I want to focus our energy here. But, you know, it's one of those terms. It's like self-awareness, emotional intelligence. You know, everybody, if you ask them what it is, they're like, oh, yeah, I know what it is. And you say, well, define it. And then they go, oh, mm, ah, you know, so why don't you define it for our purposes? Yeah, well- It's generally defined as our ability to manage our own emotions and understand the emotions of people around us. And at a high level, you'll see, you may may have even seen a quadrant model where you see sort of in one box, it's self-awareness, then the other box is self-management, and then awareness of others and relationship management. Uh, If you zoom in a little closer, you get into some of the facets, which includes factors such as self-regulation and motivation and empathy and social skills. And for the work that I do, I got certified several years back using a tool called EQI 2.0. And that system looks at self-perception. How do I perceive myself? What is it? What is it I see when I look at myself? Self-expression, like which is inextricably linked to how I perceive myself. Interpersonal relationship health, how I approach all of that. Decision-making, how my emotions impact my health of my decisions, and as well as how I deal with stress. And so the crux of this book looks in the middle section, it's it's five chapters on one chapter on each of those, looking at all nine types and how they tend to show up to those attributes when they're healthy and when they're not as aware or healthy. So if you can answer those questions in your type or are on a path to being able to answer those questions, to the degree that you're successful, you're developing emotional intelligence. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah. Now, what I'm after in this conversation, well, the conversation that's the book. So working with this system for a long time, talking with other emotional intelligence coaches, talking to my coach, coaching clients, really good system, really good framework overall, but lasting results don't usually happen. Meaning people go through an inventory. It's a you according to you report. So you fill out all these things, and it spits out a result for you. And in my experience, 97% of the time, people are not surprised by anything they see. They know all this stuff already, right? They know where they've got self-perception problems. They know how they deal with stress or don't deal with stress very well. So what I'm trying to do in this work is get at emotional intelligence from a slightly different angle, which is to say from an Enneagram perspective, we have these personalities, we have our, which, which is our type. And that is in many ways a mask that we hold up to the world and to ourselves as a way to have gotten our needs met as a young person, 
to defend against the things that scare us or were threatening to us. And that mask gets really rigid. And that's why we over-identify with one of the nine types, as I know you've covered much more eloquently on many of your shows. But when we sit down and talk about developing emotional intelligence, what ends up happening is we try to make adjustments to the mask. And so we start, okay, I need, I need more of the, I need more optimism. Cool. I need a different color hue on the mask. Okay, great. More eyeliner, a different kind of facial expression. I will work on it. And you can make slightly iterative, iterative changes and then a pandemic happens or some kind of job stress or a family crisis or even something much smaller than that. And we tend to revert right back to default setting approach to life because that's our conditioning. And so I think, because research shows that self-awareness isn't happening the way it should. Let me back up. We know based on tons of research that emotional intelligence is more important than IQ or many other things when it comes to our personal and professional success and well-being and happiness. The cornerstone of that is self-awareness. And as I've heard you say on this show, and I think we've discussed it over coffee in the past, only 13 to 15% of people are actually self-aware and that the more self-aware somebody thinks they are, the opposite is likely true. So we've got a problem we have to solve. So what I am suggesting is that we've got to get underneath the mask that put self-awareness aside for a minute. We need self-discovery. We need to reclaim the lost parts of our story, of ourselves, the things we put away because they didn't feel safe to have and seek healing. You know, people that are pursuing healing in their lives don't usually have to sit down with an emotional intelligence coach to figure out all the ways that they're not doing something right or doing too much of something. I think healing and wholeness are inextricably linked to emotional intelligence. I love what you're saying about lost parts of ourselves. uh, There's a couple of therapists, obviously, that I'm thinking of who that is their premise. And also theologians. I mean, one in particular I'm thinking of, Merton certainly felt that way. And I think um, I want to talk about that, the lost parts of ourselves, the healing journey, because I know like one question I've often asked my clients is, what has always been true of you? Hmm. Like what has always been true? You know, when someone tells me, you know, I'm just sort of lost, I don't know what I've got. Well, what has always been true of you? Who did you, maybe I might put it this way is, who is the person that you had to become in order to make your way in the world? And who is the person you had to leave behind in order to become that person? Hmm. Now, it takes a pretty self-reflective type. You know, fours are great with that question, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Two's pretty good at that question, you know. But a bunch of others, some are going to have a lot more trouble with a question like that. However, right. I do think, and Jung would say these lost parts end up in our shadow, for example. Mm-hmm. So, talk to me about that. Like, talk to me about the lost parts. Tell me about each, you know, maybe couple of the types' journeys toward recovering the lost parts. Yeah. Well, I think… There's so much that there's so much here because so much of what motivates each type is in their dealing with a core fear. So we talk a lot about behaviors of certain types, what you might typically see. We talk even about desires and motivations, and we talk about the fears somewhat, but so much of what fuels all of that is this fear, this story. And so you know, for one's being wrong or bad in some way, and two's fear being unwanted or unneeded, and three's fear being worthless, and, you know, we can go around four's fear being insignificant. And so that fuels 
the strategy. And so, so much of what has to happen for recovering the lost parts is facing the fear. Doing that means you're going to have to welcome a little bit of suffering. You can suffer from either being engulfed in the emotional vice or the passion of your type, or we can suffer toward healing. And a bit of suffering is required because there's a passage from Dr. James Hollis, a psychologist that I know you've read a lot of his stuff as well. He said, no freedom is possible, no authentic choice where consciousness is lacking. Paradoxically, consciousness usually only comes from the experience of suffering. And the suffering is why we often elect to remain in the constructive yet familiar old shoes. But the psyche is never silent and suffering is the first clue that something is soliciting our attention and seeking healing. So what is it about our fear? What is it about the suffering that we feel when we face that fear, when we face that story that's trying to get our attention? Yeah. And you were actually, you described your panic episode in the car. I can mm-hmm. also, which is a, you know, which is the soul's way of summoning us to a new journey. Yeah. And we can choose to medicate that. We can choose to walk away from it. And I, listen, I'm not saying that there are times when we have particular issues or things happening that don't require some kind of psychopharmacological sure. uh, intervention. But, you know, when things come to us like depression or sadness or anxiety, these sorts of things in a sort of a crisis way, we do have to stop and ask ourselves, what is my soul asking of me? What is it asking? What is it telling me? And what is it telling me through my body, right? Through the somatic experience of this feeling, right? Like what is being told to me? And I love this idea of the lost parts of ourselves. And I do believe the Enneagram provides us with a language for finding out what those lost parts are and then reclaiming them. Because mm-hmm. if the, it's not enough to know what the lost parts are, we have to go back and reclaim the exiles, the, mm. those parts of ourselves that, that were thrust into darkness out of conscious awareness and brought mm-hmm. back into light and celebrated. You're smiling. Mm. Why? I just, I'm just so, be- I just want to listen to more. This is so beautifully articulated. I love oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to hear more, man. I'll just go <laughs> on and on. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you brought up the somatic part. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Because I do put a big emphasis on that. You know, when we talk about emotions, we might get myopically focused on emotions without understanding why we have emotions to begin with. So what the Enneagram does also reveal for us very clearly is that there are three intelligences or sort of three ways that we sort of take in reality and make decisions in our lives. And that's the body, right? Types eight, nine, and one representing the body, of course, twos, threes, and fours representing the feeling center and five, six, and seven representing the head. Now, wherever we are as an Enneagram type, we are overusing one of those intelligences and underusing the others. And there's a sequence to them. And part of the work that, and this may sound counterintuitive when we talk about recovering the lost parts of ourselves, but you mentioned, you know, 
the soul alerting us through the body. It's learning to get better connected with all three of those centers. And the body, I think, gets put on a back burner, sometimes even by body types, right? It's the one when we think about intelligence that I think for most people, they kind of say, yeah, 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 I know gut instinct, but that's not as good as cognition or emotion. When the truth is, so much of what our brain even experiences starts in the body. It starts mm -hmm. there. Through the um, interoceptive process, there's the signals that come up from the body and feed into the heart and the mind and construct an emotional response to it. And so much of what happens when we have big emotions, by the way, is we got our body taking in all this information through sensing, sending these signals up. Our organs are constantly sending signals, our you know stomach, our experience with life. They're sending signals up. The brain's locked in this little black box. It doesn't know what to do other than to construct a reality based on what it's experiencing there. It's also trying to make predictions about what might happen, largely informed by those signals, but also based on past experiences and when there's a disconnect between those two things, that's often when we experience unexpected emotions and then we're not sure what how to make sense of things. So part of what this book is inviting us to do is to reconnect with all three of those and learn to get curious and question what's going on so we can bring alignment. So a big feeling might not have anything to do with emotion. It might have to do with hunger, right? It, it could be something totally unrelated or it could be um, our brain making a prediction based on a past traumatic experience that's not true here. And it's creating a big emotional response. And that's not just for fours or for twos or for threes. It happens across all the types. So part of the recovery, recovering the lost parts is doing the work of reconnecting all of those. Yes. And I, I'm really glad you brought that up because one of the things people don't talk about very much when we work with the Enneagram is how important this idea of bringing balance is in multiple mm. areas of our lives. So let's say it is with the centers, right? It, for example, you know, I'm in the feeling triad. And so I obviously want to bring my head and my gut into balance, right? So if you mm -hmm. think again of it as a stack, I, I want to get it out of a stack so that it becomes a linear kind of an expression, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. Same is true with my wings, right? I'm a four on the Enneagram. I want to have equal access to my five and my three and kind of have it be something because otherwise I'm a bird with one wing flying in a circle. <laughs> I, I want to have all three in, in, you know, active in, in equal connection to all of them. Right. Same yeah. is true with my, you know, subtype expressions, right? Like I definitely or instincts. I definitely want, you know, I'm a self-pres, but that means I, you know, for me personally, you know, I'm a one-to-one -one repressed, right? And I really want to get my, you know, and my wife would really like me to bring that one-to-one <laughs> -one up so that those three are balanced. And so everybody listening here, I just want you to know so much of the Enneagram is about balance. And this is why I appreciate what you're writing about in this book. We want to begin to stop living one-third of a life. Yes, Right. In different areas of our lives. We don't want to live with one third of a brain or one third of our resource tools and et cetera. You know, anyway, gets me excited as you can tell when we talk about it. Yeah. I mean, greater balance produces greater awareness, which creates greater optionality. We create more choice, right? Mm -hmm. We stop just merely reacting to life out of, you know, out of whatever's happening in front of us. And you mentioned personal relationships. You know, I'm a self pres dominant. And my wife's self-preservation repressed. She's a four. Yeah. She's self-preservation repressed. It has served us so well 
to understand that. I'm self-pressed dominant. I'm thinking the flight leaves at 4.30. Exactly. Probably get to the airport by one. And, oh my you know, gosh, she, I'm the same way. She, she's over here going, oh, the flight leaves in an hour. I guess I should start packing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Dude, this, okay, so I am a self-pressed four and my wife is self-pressed repressed as well, uh, right? And she's a one and she's a one to one dominant. So it's like, oh my gosh, you're killing me. And so I'll say to her, look, we got to go meet with our financial guy. And I stay up until three in the morning. I'm the guy who stays up till three worrying about retirement. Okay. <laughs> she's not thinking about our retirement position. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. She's thinking about where are we going to go to dinner together where we can talk? <laughs> and you know, and I'm like, I don't, what? <laughs> like, yeah. Understanding I don't know our the money for dinner. How do you yeah. know we can afford dinner? Exactly. I'm panicked about money for dinner right now. It's a, it's, it's a bit of a nightmare. All right. So you talk about the true self in the book. I want to say, ask you, what is the true self? Because that's a, one of those really flimsy terms. And then mm. how do people figure out if they're actually out of touch or defending against their true self? That's such a good question. I would point to the virtues as the North Star of the true self. So each Enneagram type has an emotional vice called the passion. And I know you've said this on the show before, but it's not like passion, like, oh, I'm passionate about golfing. It's the kind of passion of being overtaken like a crime of passion mm -hmm. that becomes the dominant emotional experience from which all other emotions and thought patterns will originate when we are most in the grip of that. So for ones, you know, when they're in the grip of the vice, they're in the grip of anger. And when twos, that's pride. And three is self-deception. And four is envy. And five is avarice. And six is fear. And seven is gluttony. And eight is lust. And nine is sloth. And that's the exact opposite of the true self, which is represented in the virtue. So mm -hmm. ones have serenity. They return to serenity. Twos return to humility. Threes return to authenticity. Fours, equanimity. Fives, uh, non-attachment. Six, courage. Seven, sobriety. Eight, innocence. And nine, action. Now, most of the time in trying to get back there, we use all of our personality strategies to get there. When in rea reality, what we have to do is take off these masks and return to the virtue is, as I said a little bit earlier, we have to get back to the origin story. We have to get back to what happened that told me that I, that, you know, as a three, what told me that being my most authentic self, fully connected to my emotional experience, wasn't going to be okay. It wasn't going to work. It was going to, I was going to get harmed. And slowly I start adapting to the wants and needs and expectations of others and believe a story that all that other stuff, my own emotional experience doesn't matter. My own real identity doesn't really matter. What matters is who I can be for other people. And then they'll validate back to me that I have some kind of worth. And so for me personally, it's been an ongoing journey of trying to go back to early Scott and look at all of those incidences and messages, whether those messages were real or they were just the perception of a small boy's mind and how he took in, you know, the reality around it and how he constructed his reality. Either way, going back and with compassion and curiosity, 
getting back to those stories. And, you know, I've done things like EMDR has been a huge helpful tool for mm -hmm. me, kind of having a mechanism to go back and reconnect and kind of reinsert myself as a grown adult into those stories and to do some healing work there. Yep. There's a bunch of things you could do, but that's been helpful for me. Yeah, you know, it's uh, we were just saying this on another show, but I keep going back to this with people. Your type, in many ways, is a response to a primal wound, to a trauma mm. of some kind, to a first trauma. And mm -hmm. it is a defense against re-experiencing that pain. So it's like, it's a strategy. You're like saying to yourself as a three, you know, this is a wound I experienced. It was very painful. This is all unconscious, right? This was a terrible, you know, at three years old, two years old, one year, whatever it was, I had this terrible experience. And I, I figured out that if I just succeed and appear successful, avoid failure and you know, do X, Y, and Z, I won't have to re-experience that. And so the journey, this is why it's important to do the origin story work. It's like, okay, I, I would be really helpful for me to know what happened that launched me in this journey of this strategy of my particular type. But now let's just talk about the spiritual life for a second, which I know isn't you know necessarily as big a feature of this book, but I'm going to just drag us there for a second, right? Do it. So- Self-knowledge is important, but it's not enough, right? I mean, like, for example, I don't think I will ever be completely rinsed out of the core fear of the four. I am never going to stop struggling with envy. It is always going to be there. It is so grooved. <laughs> I, there's, you could put me in therapy forever, and I'm still going to wrestle with shame as a four. It's just, yeah. it's not going away. Yeah. And I think sometimes we have this un, kind of like unchallenged assumption that, man, if I just do enough therapy, enough work, all this stuff's going to go away. I don't think so. Not under our own efforts. So I do think that the only way for us to experience, and I do say only with full awareness that that's a heavy word, unless we have some kind of spiritual awakening that leads to a psychological shift and perceptive you know, perceptual shift in the world that's pretty dramatic. It's like something, yeah. something outside of us, call it higher power, call it the universe, call it Buddha, call it Jesus. I don't know what it is for people listening, but something else outside of us has to bring that healing into our lives. Otherwise, there's we can move the furniture around as you as a, using a metaphor you used earlier in a different context. But that's just been my experience, right? Like I need something outside of me to lift me out of that that false self, out of that core fear, out of that vice, you know, because I, I can work as hard as I want, but I've just never been very successful. What do you think, Anthony? I 100% agree. I think it has to come from outside yourself. What do you think? I mean, I think it's both and, but I, well, really, I really see. Yeah, it is both and, but I just think that to, in order to re-narrate, it has to be from someone outside looking in yeah you know? yeah i agree i was about to say both and i think the work is complementary to one another the mm -hmm. psychological and spiritual yeah yeah and i think it requires higher power others and self i don't even mm -hmm. think it's just you know it's it requires others too well yeah, yeah. you're talking about transcendence ultimately yeah. right yeah. Like at right. some point if we're going to transcend these addictions which essentially is what the vice is mm -hmm it's going to require a sort of vertical movement, if you will. There's some yes. element of that. Yeah. So thinking about Bill W., Bill Wilson, the founder of AA right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Bill Wilson tried everything he could. He was dying of alcoholism in a, in a hospital. 
He tried everything he could over years to stop drinking. They said he was a hopeless case, that he would just eventually die. He had a radical spiritual awakening, that's the term he used, in a hotel room in a town's hospital, and never drank again. Wow. And what his thing was, and of course, that led to the creation of the 12 steps and, you know, the Alcoholics Anonymous and now, oh, you know, Overeaters Anonymous and Sex Anonymous or whatever, right? But his premise was, is that you could, only God could do for you what you could not do for yourself. Mm-hmm. So there is this, and it is, Anthony, it is this co-creative work, right? Yeah. It is a God, higher power, and you doing the work together. But I would argue the lion's share of the work falls on God, higher power, or whatever you, I don't want to presume every listener is a Christian or something, you know, I want to give it a big emphasis. And that's where I'm coming from, Scott. I think with healing, what you're talking about, you know, that dynamic is, is at play. I completely agree. I make a point, though, to say, you know, be, and you you had a guest on the show the other day that made the same point is, you know, beware of spiritual bypassing, yes. right? Like, don't try to jump to the vertical at the expense of the horizontal, in other yes. words, right? Like, yes. do the work. Sometimes, you know, the spiritual healing you're going to get is going through the difficult, right? Mm. Confront that suffering we talked about, that sort of deep psychological wounding work. And, you know, maybe the spiritual gift that's coming to you is by an invitation to go through that work, right? But I think 100% you're right that, and I know the Enneagram kind of even points to this, you know, this is more masterclass stuff, but the emotional vice leads to these sort of mental fixations and we won't go through them all here. But when we do the work, and I think both psycho-spiritual elements of the work, we recover something known as the holy ideas. And our minds now are set on a much higher plane of thinking and perceiving reality for a closer glimpse of what it really is. Mm-hmm. You know, one, ones begin to see a holy perfection and twos understand that there's a holy will at work in the universe and it's not up to them to have to go play God and, you know, solve everybody's problems and threes rest in holy hope and uh, and holy law that all things are unfolding according to a plan and you can go through all the types. So, I think the very nature of this system points to you can't avoid the spirit. If you try to avoid the spiritual, you you won't get all you need out of this process. Well, I'm really glad you said that. And I don't think, you know, obviously we have lots of listeners who identify as Christians, but I just want to make it clear that, you know, I've known many people, and as you have, Scott, who in their own way have found connection to a higher power and have done the work and have discovered these holy ideas in their lives and have developed a transcendent view of the world and of themselves as a result of doing the joyful and difficult curriculum of the Enneagram. So, I mean, I'm, I am so thrilled this book has been written, man. The Enneagram of Emotional Intelligence, A Journey to Personal and Professional Success by my friend Scott Allender, Enneagram guru, I might add, and coach. Uh-huh. I also want to say that this book drops on April 25th. However, you can pre-order it right now. And in fact, I'll wait. Right now, I'm just going to wait online. We're just going to start talking about our kids while you go on there right now and order the book on Amazon, The Enneagram of Emotional Intelligence, A Journey to Personal and Professional Success. Scott, tell people where they can find out more about you. Go to scottyallender.com or find me on EQ Enneagram. I'm also on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter as well, Scott Allender. That's folks, that's A-L-L-E-N-D-E-R. Scott, man, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for making this really important contribution 
to the conversation about the Enneagram and about yeah. emotional intelligence, about really self-discovery, uh, the importance of it. And, you know, as you and I both know, man, the more work we do like this, you know, the little teeny ways that we can move the needle, this makes a difference on our planet. So thank mm. you. Thank you, Ian, for having me on. It's such a pleasure. And Anthony, thank you. Mm-hmm. Love you guys. Yeah, man, you too. Hey, Typology Tribe, please remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. May you have rest. Until next time, friends.